Well, open up with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue to work through this uh, beautiful chapter, and your pew Bible, that's on page 1008. Hebrews 11, 1008. The Lord has given me a thorn in my flesh, which has been this cold for about a month. So forgive me as I drink my water. I'll start reading here in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, He did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and we do ask that you would Bless us now this morning by not only the reading of your word, but the hearing of it expounded so that it might be life to us. Would your word be written upon our hearts? Would it not only convict us of sin, but conform us now more into the image of Christ so that in him we might live lives in full, obedient reflection of his glory? Lord, may that work be done in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Now, throughout this passage in Hebrews 11, which we've been focusing now on the life of Abraham uh, over the last couple of weeks, perhaps you'll have noticed, and we've only touched on it a little bit, but perhaps you'll have seen this running theme throughout the problem, uh, this, this problem of death. It started really with Sarah. Do you remember last week in verse 11, where the author there says that by faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age to conceive. In other words, she was at the stage in life closer to the end of life where she herself was not able to bring forth life. The author then turns up the volume a bit in verse 12. He says, even Abraham, who was himself as good as dead. Death is this theme, the context in which the author is bringing out the faith of Abraham in the context of death. In fact, he makes it even more explicit in verse 13, doesn't he? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. It was dying and and death that served as the frame to highlight the beauty of their faith. Look at their faith in the midst of dying and death. And in our text this morning, it is to this theme of death where our author again really focuses his mind. You can... See it briefly there in verse 17, Abraham, when he was offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. And then again in verse 18 or 19, he considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead. Again, verse 20, Isaac, at the end of his life, inches from death, invokes blessing. Verse 21, Jacob, when he was close to death, when he was dying, 
blessed each of his sons. And then verse 22, by faith, at the end of his life, there at the bar of death itself, he looks forward to the future. It is, in fact, this idea of death, namely our own day of death, where the author, I think, is leading us in chapter 12, where if you look there quickly in chapter 12, verse 3, he tells us to consider Jesus Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you too may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of death, to the point of shedding blood. If you remember, for the original audience to whom this book was written, they were being persecuted for their Christian faith, and, and he's reminding him them here, isn't he? He's showing them examples from Hebrews 11 of how faith and obedient God-centered faith can oftentimes lead to death. It can lead to martyrdom. He's also showing them that faith can exist in the midst of a horizon that is bringing death. And though we in our context right here and right now in Greenbelt, Maryland, Western society as we have it and know it, well, we may not go through martyrdom, for our faith. But we will, like everyone else, I think, have to face death, won't we? And what we see here in this text is is how we can face death with faith. What difference does faith make when it comes to dying? And the answer the author gives us is that it makes a huge difference. There was a time when Christians were known as people who knew how to die well. It was a part of of Christians' concern to be known as people who lived life in preparation of death, or more specifically, who who lived life in preparation for life after death. Many of my heroes were Puritans, and uh, in their portraits, you see them at their study, and and in many of them, on their study was a, a skull that faced them as they read their Bibles, and the skull was there They put it there as a reminder to say that that's where I'm headed. Everything I'm doing right here, right now, does not matter unless I think rightly about death and what happens after death. Today, if someone starts talking about death, everyone becomes a bit nervous. You're seen as morbid, aren't you? It's almost impolite to bring up death. It was often understood that whatever the church did here, it should at the very least prepare its members to face death and to meet God. I think I've come to know that more and more as a pastor, as I've walked with loved ones and fellow church members as they approach death and and enter into death. Oh, how sweet it is to see their faith renewed and to walk right by their side singing hymns with them and praying with them and encouraging them to look forward to Christ who will meet them after death. Church, if nothing else, ought to be a place where we are preparing members to die well. And at the same token, looking out and calling out to a world who does not take death seriously and saying it does matter. You must meet your maker and your judge, and so death matters for you. It's, a, it's, it's an evangelistic and also a, a culture of care. We saw last week, faithfulness now means living in light of eternity. Looking forward to that day to come, knowing with confidence that this life is not all that there is. And we see in our text this morning, 
To be sure, what connects each character is not only that they're direct descendants of Abraham, so that we have Abraham's son Isaac, and, and then Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's son Joseph, <coughs> but we also see that each son lived by faith, right? Each new verse begins with the phrase, by faith. And what's so interesting is that, that what the author picks up on is not, well, it's not what I would have picked up on. It, it, it wasn't that, you know, I look at these guys and I, I read them in Genesis and, and you know, if I were to, to pick the faithfulness of, uh, of Isaac, I'm not sure I would have picked this scene where he invokes blessing upon his sons. If I were to pick up on the great faith of Jacob, I'm not sure I would have picked up on this scene where he, he, he blesses the sons of Jacob. Certainly, if I looked at the life of Jacob, and, and, and as the author of Hebrews wanting to bring out faith, oh, I would have picked up his faithfulness in being jailed for 13 years, or his, his great faith shown in, in resisting the temptations of Potiphar's wife. Or the great faith he showed in in trusting God's word over and against all the world and the culture around him. But the author doesn't do that here. What he wants to show and pick up on is how they dealt with their faith at the end of life. It's the end of life, the oncoming reality of death that highlights and shows, according to the author of Hebrews, most brightly what faith looks like. What ultimately ties all these people together is their faith in the face of death. And it begins with Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, verse 19, that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We need to remember that Isaac was the, well, he was the apple of Abraham's eye, wasn't he? He was the son of promise. Can you imagine 99-year-old Abraham walking through the camp with Sarah when greeted by a neighbor? And, and here's a ma- Abraham immediately saying, here's my boy, Isaac. Have you seen my son? <laughs> I'm 99 years old. Have you seen my son? This is him. The child was was what Abraham had been looking forward to for so long. And we know his heart was wrapped up in having this child, right? His heart longed for this child. And we know that because, well, earlier he was willing to sleep with his wife's maidservant in order to have his child. But God wouldn't let the son of that rendezvous be the fulfillment of promise. God said it must be Isaac who was brought about by God's grace through Abraham and Sarah and their faith in that promise together. Abraham loved Isaac. But then the unthinkable happened. We read in Genesis chapter 22 that, quote, now it came about that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And and there he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and, and he went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. I wonder what Abraham's eyes looked like 
as he saw the mountain where he was going to sacrifice his son. And he saw the place from afar. And Genesis 22 tells us that Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on his son Isaac. What's going on in this account? What's the test that God is giving here? Well, Abraham had already passed one of his tests, hadn't he? In obedient faith, Abraham had already died to his past. He listened to God's call and he believed the promise that through him and his future son, God would bless the nations. And so he left the land of Ur, and by faith, he left the life that he used to live, worshiping back there in the land of Ur, the sun, the moon, and all the other false gods with that culture. And now, passing that test, he followed Yahweh. He passed that test. But now God, in Genesis 22, tests Abraham again. And the test is not to put his past to death, but now the test is to put his future to death. And do you see the problem being presented? If God had promised that through Isaac, God would bring salvation to the nations, then why now kill Isaac? How can you promise life through this boy's life and yet command me to take his life before you've brought the promise to fruition? The writer to the Hebrews calls Isaac Abraham's only begotten son. Sure, there was Ishmael, but you know, Ishmael was not the promised son. It was, it was only Isaac who was actually the promised seed, the only begotten from Abraham and Sarah. And the text says that Abraham was about to offer him up. And you have to imagine what's going on here. Did that walk up to Mount Moriah take forever in Abraham's mind? Or perhaps it was seconds. And, and he takes the wood and he, he puts it on Isaac's shoulders and, and they march up the hill. And Isaac asks the most heart-wrenching question any father could ever hear. Daddy, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham, by faith, and I'm sure it was a faith that existed in his heart that was hurting deeply, at what he knew was about to happen. But he answers by faith still, and he says, don't worry, son. God will provide. And I wonder what those moments were like after the altar was finally arranged and Abraham turned to his son, his his only begotten and beloved son, and he said, come here, son, I need to bind you. Of course, we need only imagine a little bit how Isaac responded here. Now, Isaac probably was close to being a teenager, Uh, and he could have easily overtaken his 99-year-old father. (laughs) That was nothing for him. Uh, He could have easily gotten himself out of that clear and present danger. But what does he do? He submits himself as a perfectly obedient son to his father's will and allows himself to be bound as a sacrifice. Do you hear the echoes of the gospel? And who knows what was going on through their minds, but there they were, Isaac bound, and and Abraham, his father, holding the knife up to Isaac's throat, ready to slit his throat as sacrifices were done in those days. And what does the author of Hebrews tell us? Look at verse 19. The one who was about to offer his son considered that God was able to raise him up from the dead. Why? How? 
Because verse 17 reminds us, it's absolutely clear. Abraham received and believed the promise that through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. In the life of his son, who he was about to kill, was the future and fulfillment of all God's promises. In other words, if the boy dies, then God's promises die. And here's the point. Abraham knew by faith that God's promises never die. You see, Hebrews 11 isn't so much about faith as it is about God. Faith is only as good as the object you put your faith in. And the point of Hebrews 11 is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, that's the always faithful, promise-keeping, never-failing, always-fulfilling-his-promises-covenant-keeping God. And just notice quickly how verse 19 puts it. Abraham considered. He reasoned. He received the promise of God. He thought through it. It was Abraham's faith considering and reasoning out the implications of God's word. He came to a conviction and was fully persuaded that his own obedience could not and would not nullify the promises of God. Do you see here how faith and reason are not opposed to each other, but work in tandem to bring about obedience and trust in God? And what was the conclusion of Abraham's faith? Reasoning through God's promise? God must be able to raise people up from the dead. So that, you know, if if God promised more life to come through Isaac, and God was now commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, then it must be that through his death, God will bring about life again and raise up Isaac. So that in him, the promise could and would be fulfilled. What's the point? Isaac was the best gift God had ever given to Abraham. Everything Abraham wanted was found in that gift, the blessing of Isaac. And so what's being tested here is Abraham's faith. Is Abraham more devoted to God, the great gift giver, or is he more devoted to the gift? God's test is asking the question, who is your God, Abraham? Is it me, the God of all creation? Or Abraham, is Isaac, your beloved son, your most beloved son, become your God? Parents in here feel that tension. Is he the object of all your love? Is he the object of all your focus, your hope, and your your satisfaction? Who ultimately has Abraham's heart? And the implications for this are striking. Even though Abraham must have been beside himself with love over his son Isaac, God was reminding Abraham that Isaac firstly belonged to the Lord. I think God was reminding us that all the beautiful blessings we enjoy are also blessings that come from and ultimately belong to the Lord. Do we hold the gifts that God gives us with an open hand? Do we understand that the the blessing God brings our way, the people and the relationships he brings into our lives, the gifts that have enriched us greatly, all these are from him, and that he gives them and takes them away with perfect wisdom and goodness. We sang that earlier. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. When God gives gifts, it's always for our good. And when he takes away gifts, God is telling us here 
that that's also for our good. I have a plan, and I have a purpose for this. I've given you good things. Enjoy it and enjoy it well. But don't hold on too tightly. I'm taking it away for your good as well. There's more gifts to come. And so faith, living by faith, well, it comes with, with open hands to our Father, and it, and it says, everything is yours, O Lord. And we, 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 when we don't tighten our hands in this kind of idolatrous clutch, holding on too tightly as the Lord begins to take it away, painfully unwrapping each finger. And if by faith we keep an open palm, though there will be sorrow in the taking away, there won't be painful anger. Having that open hand allows you to live life more with freedom and security, trusting in the goodness and wisdom and sovereignty of God. Having real faith in the face of a world where, let's face it, death abounds, and so often our loved ones are taken away from us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I read a story, as I've been reading so much uh, this past year on Martin Luther, of his daughter, um, he called her um, Lena, who died. I think she was uh, no more past the age of nine or ten. And as she was dying, Luther's holding her in his arms, crying, and, and he asks her, my dear Lena, my dear Lena, are you willing and are you wanting to go to see your father or do you want to stay here with me, your earthly father? And I think really wanting to hold on to his daughter and her answer as his father, as her father, Martin Luther, taught her, was, Father, as the Lord wills. I'll go as the Lord wills. And she died. And he says that he gave that up to God, sending a saint, as it were, to heaven, trusting that God gave and took away. And though it was painful, he knew that God was good in the midst of it. The author of Hebrews brings this up for us. He, he brings up for us the giving up of Isaac, giving him up as unto death to remind us that God is the God who can provide for us even in and through death. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so, too, the author shows us through Isaac and through Jacob and through Joseph that even as they approach the bar of death, they know that God's promises. Well, they're not thwarted by death. God isn't surprised or, or caught twiddling his think fingers and, and saying, oops, I didn't see that coming. Now, their faith considers God and they become persuaded that God is still working out his faithfulness and all our good, even through death. So Isaac, by faith, in verse 20, invokes future blessings on Jacob and Esau. It was there in Genesis 27 where Isaac, at the end of his life, now blinded by old age and, and ready to be buried where his father and mother lie, calls his sons to give them their blessings. And we need to realize that when Isaac gave the blessing, this wasn't like, you know, like a Hallmark card kind of prayer that sort of encouraged his son as he was about to die. Now, the, these blessings that were given were, were spirit-inspired prophecies that proclaimed how God's promise would come to fulfillment in and through the next generation. And what we're seeing here is Isaac, at the end of his life, realizing that though he never himself saw the final fulfillment of God's promise, he nonetheless in faith held on to the promise and knew 
God was still working it out. Come here, sons. I need to bless you prophetically as to how God will continue to work out the promise he's given to me. Death will not stop God's faithfulness. Then in verse 21, we see Jacob, while he was dying, also blessing each of the sons of Joseph. And it says, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Isn't that a great phrase? What a fantastic image given that in the face of death, Joseph is holding on to God's promises and even worshiping in solemn awe as he considers God's faithfulness. And then lastly, in verse 22, Joseph, who at the end of his life, also dying, talks about returning to the land and gives directions about burying his bones, not in Egypt, but back in the promised land that God had promised to his fathers. Do you see that? In the face of death, Joseph is looking forward with hope and holding by faith that God was still working and was faithful to fulfill all that he had promised. They have a real faith because they're holding on to and placing all their trust in the only solid foundation of our faith, the God of the Bible. And in each one of these examples, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Joseph, all of them highlight the same thematic point. Faith in God can stand up to death because faith knows that God can overcome death. Faith in God can stand up to death because faith knows that God can overcome death. The philosopher Peter Kreeft recounts the story of a seven-year-old boy whose cousin had just died at the age of three. He asked his mother, where is my cousin now? She didn't believe in God or the afterlife, and so she couldn't with integrity talk to her son about heaven. Instead, she followed the modern secular narrative. Your cousin has gone back to the earth, she said, from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life, and so when you see earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life that helped to grow those very flowers. How did the little boy respond? He screamed, I don't want him to be fertilizer, and he ran away. Peter Kreeft argues rightly that the mother had let the modern narrative suppress our natural human intuition that death is not natural at all. He argues that to tell people they must accept death as just another stage of growth is like telling a quadriplegic that paralysis is just another stage of exercise. Now, all ancient myths, legends, and religions that deal with death have always depicted it as an intrusion, an aberration, a monstrosity, in existence. It always appears because something has gone wrong, and it's no different in the storyline of Scripture. Death enters in because of mankind's wrong decision. Death was not the way things were supposed to be. And the poet Dylan Thomas gets at the heart of this, I think, in his famous poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Rage, rage against the darkness of death, and do not go gentle into that good night. As one writer puts it, the fact of death is the great human repression, the universal complex. To insist that death is nothing to be frightened of is simply just another illusion muffling the obscenity of death. And it's obscene. 
but we live in denial of it, suppressing the thought of it, turning to anything to distract our minds from the ever-present reality approaching each and every one of us on the horizon. Death awaits us all. And even though we put on blinders and stop up our ears, the fact still disturbs us, it haunts us, and it could, if left unchecked, quietly drain us of all hope. Consider the time we live in now. When was the last time anyone here personally buried someone? And I mean, I mean actually dug the hole and put the body yourself into the ground. In much of human history, that actually would have been a normal thing to do a number of times throughout your life. We don't do that at all today. We hire others to do it for us. In fact, uh, that even seems to be too much for us today. 2016 marked the first time in history, at least here in America, where cremation has surpassed burial as the most popular way of dealing with our deceased loved ones. In fact, less and less people are dying in homes around loved ones, And more and more dying in sanitized hospitals, secluded from the eyes of anyone seeing it happen. I read of one board member who headed a local hospice care facility who relayed that the board members had had come together to to meet and, and they were to come up with a slogan for their facility. And he suggested, a good life deserves a good death. He said the consensus was that any slogan that contained the D word would be a turnoff that they needed to stress life and not remind people that they are dying. He tried to remind them that the D word, death, is precisely what hospice care is all about, but the board just could not buy into it. It was too awkward. Death in times past was not necessarily less tragic to those who lost loved ones by no means. It always hurts and it's always bad. It's always not normal. But I do think that death was more prevalent. It was more public more visible, and more a part of life than it is today. And I think it was like that because we lived in a society where the gospel made death more bearable. By and large, more people either believed in or knew of Jesus Christ, the one who overcame death, so as to be able to face death. But our society today has become a death-denying society. We're surrounded by gyms and, and fitness centers, Alternative medicines and an endless supply of diets, organic foods, and an ever-present reminder of what things will cause us cancer so we can stay away from. We've become consumers in search of the fountain of youth. While Netflix and talk radio and social media are literally distracting us from ever having five minutes of silence to be left in our own minds to consider the truth that awaits us all, we will die. In America, death and dying, well, that's now outsourced so that we don't have to ever really think about the D word. But Christians like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before us, we can face death boldly because we have a God who has overcome death for us. Abraham's giving up of his son, going up the mountain to offer his son Isaac in And Isaac, in full obedience, being willing to be that sacrifice. And and both of them looking forward to resurrection. All of that was only meant, as verse 19 tells us, to prefigure Jesus Christ. In Genesis 22, God provided a lamb with his head caught in the thorns so that at the end, Abraham would not have to slaughter his son. 
he slaughtered the ram instead. But in Luke 22, God gives up his own son as that more perfect lamb with his head crowned in thorns and his life given up so that in him really all the nations would be blessed. Jesus, the author of life, faced the abnormality of death, that final enemy who has ravaged humanity ever since Adam. Jesus, the new and better Adam, who never deserved death, gave himself up to death, succumbing to its cold and unforgiving grip. But Jesus, the man who died, who was buried, and whose life was taken for three days, he also got back up. And he's alive now, never again to be overcome by death. And the good news is that in him, everyone who goes to him by faith and believes in him, trusting in the promise that we have in him, we too can get back up. We overcome death in the death-killing king, Jesus Christ. The New Testament speaks of death for those who are believers in Christ as, as sleeping. Only to them, they immediately then wake up and enjoy the reality of everlasting life. Oh, death, where is your sting? The fact remains, though, that we all must die. But in Christ, we can, like Abraham before us, stand up to death by faith. One of my most favorite scenes in all literature uh, comes at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian, uh, the main character Christian and his companion, they're now at the end of their pilgrimage as aliens and strangers in the world that they've, they've pilgrimaged through. And they've, they've come close to the eternal city, the eternal city that's paced here on Hebrews 11, and as they approach, they can hear from a distance the singing of saints and the blowing of trumpets coming from within the city walls, and it's shining as gold brighter than the sun, they said. But as they approach, they see a a river, the River Jordan between themselves and the city, and the River Jordan serves as a symbol for death, and and they ask the angel standing there if there's a bridge or, or some way to go around it, but the angels standing say that, 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 that in order to get to the city, to get through that narrow gate, they must first go through that river. And here's what they say. The pilgrims began to inquire if there was no other way to the gate, to which they answered, yes, but there has not any save two to what Enoch and Elijah have been permitted to go that path since the foundation of the world. The pilgrims, especially Christian, began to despond in his mind and look this way and that, but, but, but no way could be found for them by which they might escape the river. His anxiety is building up. Then they asked the men if the waters were at all deep. They said no. Yet they could not help them in that case, for you will find it deeper or more shallow based on your belief in the king of that city. They then addressed themselves to the water, and entering, Christian immediately began to sink. And he began to cry out for his good friend, Hopeful. And he said, Hopeful, I'm sinking, I'm sinking in these deep waters. The billows are going over my head. The waves are rushing over me. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it's good. It's there. Keep walking. Then Christian replied, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have encompassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that great Darkness, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. And here, in a great measure, 
He lost all his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he earlier had on his travels. But all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had a horror of mind and his heart was full of fears that he should die there in that river and never obtain the entrance into the gate and eternal life. Here also, as they stood by, perceived he was much in a troublesome state, thinking of all his sins that he had committed, all the sins before he was a Christian and all the sins after he had been a Christian. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins, demons, and spirits. Forever and anon, he would intimate to such by words. And hopeful, therefore, here had much ado to keep his brothers just above water, Sometimes he would be quite gone down and then air while he would rise back up again half dead. And his friend Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him saying, Brother, I see the gate, I see the gate, keep going. But Christian would answer, No, it's for you, it's for you they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, he said, surely if I was right, then he would now raise me to help me. But for my sins, he has brought me here into the snare that I might die here in this river. Death will take me. Then said hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgotten that text in Psalm 73, where it says of the wicked that there is no fear in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not troubled as other men are, and they're not plagued like other men. These troubles and these fears that you're going through in these waters, they're no sign that God has forsaken you, but they're sent now to try you and strengthen you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore has been received in goodness. Will your faith cling to Christ, or will it succumb to the anxieties and fears of your own heart? And then I saw in my dream that Christian was as in a muse a while, to whom also hopeful added these words, be of good cheer, Jesus Christ is making you whole. He's coming out. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, you shall not overflow. Quoting from Isaiah. They both took courage. And the enemy was gone after that until they had both finally made it over. And Christian, therefore, presently found ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow as they made it up to the eternal city, to enjoy Christ forever. That scene shakes my heart every time I read it. The reality of death is a scary reality, especially in light of what we know about our own hearts. And yet the good news of the gospel, the good news of Hebrews 11, is that Christ has overcome it completely in his righteousness and that we can cling to him and that even as we approach those waters of death, all the fears and anxieties that are welling up within us, all the remembrances of everything that we've committed wrongly in this life, we can say Christ will bring me through. Let's pray.